Well, let's pray together. Lord, I pray you'd be with us now. Be with me as I open up your word. Uh, Be with us all as we listen. I pray you'd help us to understand. Give me clarity. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Your Holy Spirit would be with us now. Lord, be with us, I pray, in your name. Amen. Well, let me start by trying to visualize a bit of that story for you, because as it's being read, you might not completely get it. So let's try and visualize it a bit. Now, I want you to imagine that this here, so the gap between Martin and Jane all the way down, is the Jordan River. So the basin of the River Jordan. Now, it would be slightly larger than the gap we have here, but just imagine this is the Jordan River, the basin of the River Jordan. Because what's happened in the story so far is that God has rescued his people, and they have fled from Egypt, and he has sent them to the Promised Land, where under Joshua, their leader, they have entered the Promised Land. They have crossed the River Jordan from east to west and gone over here into the Promised Land of Canaan. And Israel is split up into 12 tribes. Before they went across to the west, there were two and a half of the tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh that spotted this land over here. And it was quite nice land, quite fertile land. And they basically said, can we have that land? And the answer was, you may. And so they settled in the land, outside of the promised land, but under God's blessing. However, the rest of the tribe of Israel, they went and crossed the River Jordan. And they went to settle in the promised land. So you lot are the nine and a half other tribes. I don't know those ones off by heart. The nine and a half other tribes are here. God said to the two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half of Manasseh, come over with them. And come and help the nine and a half tribes settle into the promised land. So that is what they have done. They've crossed the Jordan and come and helped the rest of Israel settle. And only once they had settled and were at rest were the two and a half tribes, or at least some of them, to go back to their home. And what we see tonight in this chapter of Joshua is what happens when those two and a half tribes head back home. And you may have picked up from Will's reading that what they do is they build a big altar by the River Jordan. And that causes a bit of bother. And we're going to have to try and work out what is going on. Is that a little bit clearer? Okay, hope so. Let's see how we go. If you can turn back to Joshua... Please look at where we left it last week. So at the very end of Joshua chapter 21, we read some amazingly wonderful verses that tell us about our God. So look at the end of Joshua chapter 21 on page 237 in this Bible. And verse 43, here is where we pick it up today. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it And settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he'd sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was 
fulfilled. So we have a picture of a faithful God who keeps his promises. He delivered Israel from Egypt. They had crossed into the promised land. He'd given them the land which had been divided up. And he delivered cities into their hands. They have a faithful God who has kept all of his promises. And as we turn to the last three chapters of Joshua over the next couple of weeks, the question we're left with is how will Israel respond to God's faithfulness? There's a challenge for them to obey, to live in the light of God's goodness, to live in unity, faithfully following their God together. And actually, it's a very similar challenge for us. We have a faithful God who keeps all of his promises. How are we going to live in the light of that? And all I want to do tonight is share four things from this chapter as we go through the story. So turn to the start of chapter 22, because firstly, you will see a godly commendation, a godly commendation. So in verse 1, Joshua summons the two and a half tribes. Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, you have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. They are given the commendation that simply says, you have done exactly what was asked of you. You have carried out your mission. Now, please flick back to Joshua chapter 1. I sort of gave away their mission in my preamble, but let's have a look and see what their mission was. So Joshua chapter 1, and have a look at verse 12. Let me read from verse 12. This is their mission, these two and a half tribes. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So their mission to be with their fellow Israelites west of Jordan in the promised land. Help them. Help them settle. God will give them rest. And then you can go home. You see that Joshua calls these tribes together to commend them, to praise them. He says, 
You have done all that Moses commanded. You have obeyed me in everything. You have not deserted your fellow Israelites. You have carried out the mission that the Lord God gave you. Now that is a wonderful commendation, isn't it? An amazing thing for them to hear. Well done. You have obeyed God. From what we know of the Israelite nation, we often associate them as really fickle, don't we? We see stories where they start to follow God and they quickly turn away. And often they're punished for turning to other gods. But here is a commendation. A commendation I'm sure that we wouldn't mind having ourselves. And just here's a little reminder that actually obedience to God is not impossible. If you're anything like me, sometimes you almost just say, I'm going to sin. I can't do a lot about it. It's my natural state. So, oh, just get on with it. Or sometimes you wallow in that state of, I just can't beat it. I can't do that. I'm such a wretched, filthy sinner. And it's quite easy to fall into that mindset where it's, it's impossible to obey God. But you need to remember that you, as the Bible promises, you are grace-filled, spirit-led Christians. In Romans 6.14, we're told, sin is no longer our master. So it is possible to follow God, to obey him, to live in the light of God's faithfulness. So here are these Israelites, the two and a half tribes, commended by God for their faithfulness to him in the light of God's faithfulness to them. And he gathers them together to commend them before he sends them on the way with commands. It's often a biblical pattern. You'll see it repeated in the New Testament letters where Paul or the writer will commend the people he's writing to. So if you want to have a look at somewhere like Thessalonians, he spends three chapters basically saying, we thank God so much for you. You're a great encouragement to us. And then he says, now obey me, and picks them up on certain things. Often there's this commendation before the commands. I think we all need a bit of commendation from time to time. It's a tough life, isn't it, whether it's at work or even here in church, if all we ever hear is negatives. I wonder how good we are at commending one another. How good are we at encouraging each other? I think one of the aims of our life groups is to live alongside each other, to encourage each other through. I wonder whether when the last time you either said or heard the words, isn't it great that you're such a faithful witness of God in your workplace? I'm so encouraged by the way you try and live out your Christian life amongst your non-Christian family. That relationship you have with your children or with your spouse It really humbles me and encourages me. Maybe to our youngsters, do we ever say to them, the way you stand out at school for Christ, by going along to the Christian Union, talking to your mates, inviting them to JF, YPF, do we ever say to them, well done, that's brilliant. 
as a church, do we say to each other, well done for faithfully undertaking God's mission to go and make disciples. It's good to be encouraged, isn't it? And let me tell you that the leadership of this church, the ministry team, the elders, we will often reflect together just how encouraging you are. A church who genuinely wants to speak of Jesus to their mates, to invite people along to stuff. Well done, good and faithful servants. But don't be complacent. Have a look at verse 5. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Be careful. Be careful to love God. Obey him, keep his commands, hold fast to him. And then in verse 6, Joshua blesses them and sends them on their way. In simple terms, well done the two and a half tribes. Now go, be careful, cling to God. Live your life in response to what God has done for you. So they're commended for their faithfulness. But it's what happens next that secondly is of grave concern to Israel. Have a look down in verse 9. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Geloloth, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they built the altar on the border of Canaan at Geloloth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So remember our Jordan River here. On their way home, these two and a half tribes build an enormous altar on the side of the Jordan River. And there's something about building this altar that provokes a severe reaction from the rest of Israel, from those on the western side in the promised land. Do you see what it said in verse 12? It doesn't just say, and they thought it a bit weird. They were a bit upset. They didn't get it. It says, the whole assembly of Israel gathered to go to war against them. Their own people who just helped them in the promised land. Now they're saying, we're going to go to war with them facing their own people. So what on earth was it that provoked this reaction? Why was there such a grave concern at the building of this altar? Now please flick back. If you can find the book of Deuteronomy, a bit earlier in your Bible, and chapter 12. If you've got the church Bible, page 191. Deuteronomy chapter 12, on page 191. Here is the reason that this caused such grave concern for Israel. Here are the instructions to Israel in chapter 12, verse 1. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. 
Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithe and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So one of the things that the Israelites are told to obey in a way to follow God's command is that they are to only have one central sanctuary, one altar, one place of sacrifice. And here we find that they've built another. And in chapter 18, verse 1, we discover that where they've built their central altar is at Shiloh, the very place that the western tribes have gathered. That is their altar. That is their sanctuary as God commanded. And the reason for just having the one altar, the one place of sacrifice, was to try and go exactly opposite completely opposed to the Canaanite culture around them. The Canaanite culture where altars were popping up like no man's business. They were having their own places where they go and make their own pagan sacrifices, their own pagan places of worship. And God said to Israel very clearly, do not be like the Canaanites. Have that one central place. If you like, one altar, one faith, one people. Be united together. So as these western tribes heard of the construction of the altar, their concern was grave. It was deep. They were concerned for the unity. The fidelity of the whole of Israel's worship of God was at stake. If you like, this fear of cultural creep absorbing elements of the culture around them rather than standing out as different. That Canaanite culture creeping in to their worship of God. That was their concern. And they viewed it so seriously, they were prepared to go to war. And they sent this chap called Phineas to go and sort things out. Now, Phineas is an interesting chap. I don't know if you remember um, or you used to watch the program Gladiators. As in the program goes, contenders ready! And there they were with their big, was it the pugil sticks, trying to knock each other off these things. Now there was one um, game on gladiators called The Wall. And they had to try and get up the wall before the gladiator caught them. And there was always this moment of tension. Who was the gladiator going to be that was sent to chase them up the wall? And there'd be a great unveiling And the one person you never wanted to face on the wall was Wolf. Wolf was the man who would catch you. If you didn't watch Gladiators, you might watch The Chase. I'm a bit of a secret quiz show man. The Chase. There are that group of people. Who are they going to be facing? And there is something special about one of those champions. If you faced the beast, 
you have got the daddy of the chase. Well, here we have Phineas. He was the daddy of those western tribes. He meant serious business. When you saw or heard Phineas coming, you know something was wrong. Now, just go back to the story. Here we've got these two and a half tribes who've built an altar. We haven't been told why they've built an altar. But suddenly they discover that the nine and a half tribes are coming their way. And Phineas appears before them. They must be fearful. They must be worried. What is going on? What's the reason? Now, Phineas, earlier on, back in Numbers 25, where Israel was being condemned for actually mixing with the pagans and intermarrying and so on, he had intervened himself, and actually, he thrust a spear through a man and a woman together. And his own actions had stopped the rebellion of the Israelite nation. And he was praised for that. So he was a guy that meant business. Here are the two and a half tribes facing this delegation. Have a look in verse 16, because here is the nature of their grave concern. The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Wasn't the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we've not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And you are now turning away from the Lord? Peor is where Phineas had intervened previously. How could you turn away? How could you build yourselves an altar? You are rebelling against God. The Western tribes are fearful that this construction is a blatant act of rebellion against God. Blatant disobedience against their instruction. Here is an element of Israel pursuing their own gain, threatening disunity. And just as at Peor, where it affected the whole of Israel, one element's disunity, one element turning away from God, would impact and affect the whole of Israel. It mentions their Achan sin. Achan was a man who stole goods from the tabernacle. He kept some of the plunder for himself. And because of one man's sin, the whole of Israel was punished. Here we have the western tribes deeply fearful, a grave concern that the actions of those two and a half was a deliberate rebellion against God. And they were prepared to wage war against them for the sake of unity to preserve the faithfulness of the people of Israel. Now, if you think of it, it's actually one of the great dangers that faces us, the global church today. The danger that individuals from within the church will drift into self-centered worship, move away from being God-centered, God-led, leading to damage and disunity. You see and read examples of it all the time. The biblical principle is that Jesus Christ is the king of the church. But he has entrusted people to lead his church. So here at Chessington, we have a ministry leadership team, our pastors. We have a team of elders. In 1 Peter 5, they are told to be shepherds of God's flock, to care, to protect, to direct, to preserve, to discipline, 
to stop the flock drifting into disobedience, to stop the people being disunited. Discipline, protection of the people of God is a crucial part of a leader's role. Sometimes it's important to challenge individuals for the sake of the whole, to challenge one another. If our own leadership strays from Christ-centered doctrine, we must speak up. We must challenge because it will affect the whole. Let me just ask you, as you sit here tonight, I wonder how passionate you are about one another's eternal futures. How passionate are you about one another's Christian walk, their relationship, everyone's relationship with Jesus Christ? When you see one of your brothers or sisters pursuing their own path, going away from that God-centered path, does it grieve you? Does it give you grave concern as with the Western tribes here? I wonder if we share their passion. Do we crave the unity of the gathering that they craved? The pursuit of that united obedience to God. A united obedience in response to all that God has done for us. So here this grave concern is actually the spiritual well-being of the whole body. These two and a half tribes have been confronted with this grave concern to the point they're ready to declare war. But it's only now that the readers actually understand the purpose of the altar. The writer hasn't led us into that at all up to this point. And we discover thirdly that the altar is built out of generational commitment. Have a look at verse 21. It's not built out of any rebellion at all. It's not to try and cause disunity. Quite the opposite. Verse 21. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows. Let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we've built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. That's not why we did it. God knows our motives. He knows our heart. They swear on oath. Look at verse 24. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what have you got to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary. You have no share in the Lord. They are concerned about the generations to come. Will they, living on this side of the Jordan, be seen as a group outside of the promised land, outside of the unity of Israel as a whole? Will their children, their children's children, their children's children's children carry on the the worship of God as they are now? That is their concern, that is their commitment, that the physical barrier of the River Jordan might become a spiritual barrier. So much so that what if the descendants turn around and say, you lot, are you anything to do with God? 
verse 27. On the contrary, completely opposite of the reason you're thinking, on the contrary, it's to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord. The Western tribes feared faithlessness. The Eastern tribes sought faithfulness, both now and for generations to come. Their concern was for the future, for the future generations. If you like, this is what's called a proper worry. A proper worry. They want to do whatever they can to ensure their descendants follow God. Let me try and illustrate it for you. Many of you will know my son, Joseph. Well, when he was young, I was dead keen for him to grow up loving sport. To take on my mantle of someone that loves and has a passion for sport. So much so that I would put mini footballs in his cot. I bought him a mini cricket bat for him to carry around. I even taught him all the signals that an umpire makes, and he could do them straight off at one years old. He knew them. I bought him baby bibs, vest tops with Liverpool Football Club all over them. And when he turned around to me, age four, and announced, Daddy, I love art and craft. I thought my dream was dashed. Well, today he's an absolute sports nut. I had a generational concern for him to take up my interest. Now, that's not a proper worry. What about our generational concern for our children to love and follow Christ? That's a proper worry. If we could make our children Christian, we would, wouldn't we? Wouldn't that be our prayer, our heart? We want to make our children. We just wish we could do it. We can't. The Eastern tribes had that as their greatest commitment. A commitment to this unity and faithfulness for the sake of their descendants and the Western tribes' descendants. And they built an altar saying this was the best chance for this to happen. Now, we might not be called to build altars, but I wonder if we're doing the best we can to point the future generation to Christ. Are we modeling faithfulness to them? Are we praying for them? Are we praying with them? Are we opening God's word with them? Do our kids see us reading our Bibles? Do they see our relationship with Christ as our top priority? Are we as a church setting the best example we can to our future generation? We wish we could push our children into the kingdom. We might be a bit over pushy sometimes. Is that because your desire is for the children and the younger people to grow up following Christ? It's not a bad motivation, is it? I wonder if you get sick with worry when your child who's just passed their driving test says, can I take the car out tonight? 
That's a very different worry to your child who you drop off at university for the first time or they move out of home to go and start their own life. Yes, there's safety in the car, but there's something about their eternal safety when they step out of your home. That's a proper worry, isn't it? It might be that's why we worry about some of our friends. Either we don't see here, or they say they're moving away. It's okay for us to be concerned for one another's well-being, our spiritual well-being. We should say that to one another. We should communicate that to each other. We should be desperate for that unity, that faithfulness, just like these tribes were here. Verse 29 shows us that these tribes had understood God's command. Their motivation for building the altar was a good one and not what the Western tribes feared. Now, just a very, very quick aside. You can find whole sermons, you can find whole sections of books actually devoted on this section all about hearsay and gossip and saying, well, be careful what you listen to. Because actually you may have noticed that in verse 11 it simply said, the western tribes heard about the altar. They got it wrong. They'd misunderstood the motivation for the altar and they acted upon it. Now, there's a helpful lesson for all of us. Be careful what you act on. Particularly in a church setting, hearsay and gossip are not helpful. But that's not what this story is actually about. There is a concern that the people of Israel would be united. They would truly worship God together, and that would be preserved. There was a, a real worry it was broken by sin. Their motivation was this generational concern for long-term security. And once this misunderstanding of motivation has been resolved, we're left with this very final bit. So fourthly, there is a glorious conclusion. A glorious conclusion, verse 31. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, Today we know the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name. A witness between us that the Lord is God. They hadn't been unfaithful. Here at the end, there is clear evidence that God is with them. They are united because of God. So they can declare at the end, this altar will be a witness to say that the Lord is God. A nasty situation has been averted because God is with them. God has saved them from judgment. 
about to declare war on one another, but through their faithfulness, through their unity, it's become clear that God is their God who is with them no matter what. They discover their purposes were the same. The Western tribes, the Eastern tribes, they want the same thing. And it's when they realize this that they gain a greater understanding that God is with them. His presence is there. There may be this physical divide, but actually through the Lord God, they are brought together. They are under one God who is with them in everything. Have a quick look around you. There's a few people here. We're a funny bunch, aren't we? Bit of a mixed bag. I bet you don't all like the same thing that the other people like. I bet you we have lots of differences, even within a church setting. Some of you probably don't like this stuff. Some of you love it. Some of you probably don't like this stuff. Some of you love it. We're different, aren't we? We all have different characters. There's something that draws us all together. And the Israelites have just rediscovered that. The Lord is God. Jesus Christ is our King. So yes, we can have our own preferences on style. We can have our opinions about this, that, and the other. There is one thing that keeps us together, keeps us united. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. Nothing else. Jesus is Lord. Now one of our prayers should be that others come in and see through our unity, through being together, our gathering, there's something special. There is something amazing that keeps us together. Can people look at us as a body of God's people and say, they are united in Christ. Jesus is Lord. We are one people under one God with one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray that together we can stay together and we can be a great example, a great witness to one another, just as that altar was meant to be a great witness that Jesus is Christ, the Lord is God. Let's pray together. Lord, you are a great God who keeps all of his promises. We pray for unity. We pray that there'll be one central concern of us here. That each one of us continues or maybe starts for the first time to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as our King. Lord, I pray that the very center of all that we do, all of our worship will be you. 
Help us to never get sidetracked into our own things, Lord. I pray that we would follow you, trust you, focus on you in all that we do and say. And Lord, we pray for our younger generation. We cry out to you for them, Lord. Lord, rescue them, save them. Show them through us something of your goodness. Work powerfully in our young people's hearts, Lord. We pray that here in Chessington, for generations to come, not just this place, but people that love you and follow you will be preserved and will grow and grow and grow. Lord, work in our hearts, work in our lives. Help us, uh, even this weekend that I pray. Amen.